Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. This piece is entitled Bill Jackson on Xerox, Xerox Park, Xerox Hardware, and the End of Mesa. San Francisco Bay Area resident Bill Jackson gave us a great overview of his years at Xerox when Digibarn curator Bruce Damer visited him in October of 2005 to pick up two Mac seaboards that Bill had kindly provided. Let's listen. Okay, my name is Bill Jackson, um, and uh, I started work at Xerox Park in uh, around March of '84. Okay, and uh, I I uh, came into the computer science lab. Actually, it was uh, a group that was between it, the the integrated circuit lab and the computer science mm -hmm. lab at the time. And when I appeared, um, the the engineer who was assigned to help me get situated was on a committee that was figuring out how to quote out a machine to replace Max. And uh, This was in 74 or 84? 84. 84. 84. Max 84. was still running? Max was still running in 84. This is amazing. <laughs> and uh, um, it, was, it was built in the early 70s, right? Was, uh, I don't know exactly when it was yeah. built. Um, and so I was sort of tagging along in a committee meeting, and they were sitting around saying, like, oh, what are we going to do? And they had a bunch of quote paperwork. And I said, oh, well, what are you ordering? And, and they said, well, oh, we're not really sure what config we should want. And so I looked at it, and I said, oh, well, this, this is obviously a VAX with a Unibus. And they looked at me going, like, you understand this? Why don't you work to get a configuration that works? Okay. And so I was immediately appointed to be a member of the committee to interface with the deck sales guy. And uh, I roughed up the quote that became the machine that replaced Max. Okay. And, um, and in fact, the next step was we committed to the order, and it was like, well, Bill, do you know anything about Unix distributions and how to install Unix? So my second full-time job was to to get the the Vax Park Vax with a funny C on the end for um, a little of course. Uh, tie to Max. Okay. <laughs> why, why was there a C on the end of Max? Uh, the, the multiple access Xerox computer. Multiple access Xerox computer. Yeah. See, the the Max C was sort of made there at Park as a sort of timeshare. Whereas a lot of the researchers wanted their own computer, which was the Alto, on the network, because that was the new paradigm they're trying to push. But obviously the timeshare kept going at Park. Yeah, I actually think that Max preceded the Alto. Preceded Alto. In fact, yeah. they, they, what I understand is that the, when Park was established in 69, the order went out, well, of course you're going to use a Sigma, because Xerox had bought this company called Sigma, and the Park researchers said, no way. And they built their own system, and then Butler Lamson in December '72 specified out uh, the Alto, which was built in '73. And I held a 30th birthday party for it three years ago, <laughs> an event where people came, and we had panels and we had our Alto and stuff like that. Yeah, but I think a key reason for building Max was to be the the ARPA interface host. Okay. Right. Okay. Wow. Um, as such and as ARPANET was, yeah, but it was and, there, so and it so was the gateway. Xerox had an IMP, and it was connected to the IMP. IMP being the Internet, Internet Message Processor. Processor. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so Max was the gateway. And, and the amps were connected by 56 kilobit yeah. lease lines. Um, and um, there was, uh, by the time I got involved, um, there was an alto that could also connect to the imp. Um, although I don't recall how the hardware was set up so that both, both hosts could connect to the imp. Um, and, uh, and Hal Murray, who's a guy who kept the network running, um, had a machine that he set up to be the mail gateway machine. So mm -hmm. the Max was still using used for Telnet and FTP. Okay. And so the VAX was plunked down to be a machine to do Telnet and FTP access, um, and generally to be a Unix resource in a in a center that really didn't have any. It had no Unix, Unix machines. No. It was the Smalltalk group was starting to get some one use and some two right. use to do small talk right. development on. Right, right. The sun was just starting to make inroads in there because mm -hmm. it was sort of a machine from the neighborhood. Yeah, and in fact, even <clears throat> the the small talk Unix boxes were sort of like what kind of multibus computer hardware could we just get? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that that the small talk guys cared whether or not it, it ran Unix. You know, it was just cheap hardware that yeah. was commodity instead of build it yourself. Because Dorados were sort of built in-house. And, and they were expensive. <laughs> and they were noisy, too. And they were noisy. And, uh, um, and, and you know, everybody saw that commercial microprocessors would, would overtake us. Yeah. The only question is when. Right. <laughs> um, there was lots of dandelions around Park, but people kind of... Well, in... In sort of the mid-80s, dandelions were displacing altos. So okay. when I arrived... There were still a lot of altos. There were still a lot of altos. A lot of secretaries still had altos. So there was this kind of split between uh, star systems and altos. And the secretaries at first didn't like stars because they didn't... The, the, the version of star that, that was available to them didn't perform very well. <laughs> and in addition, all the researchers were using network infrastructure that you couldn't get to from, oh, from okay. STAR because STAR right. was all XNS based. Right, and people were carrying around their their disk packs. Yeah. It was convenient <laughs> to move your, your life but, around. But mostly everybody was using IFSs to keep all their files on. So right. if secretaries are doing work and they wanted to refer to a file a researcher wanted, and just go get they it had to get special software, some hack software, to get to, to use a protocol to get to the IFSs. And we also use Grapevine Mail instead of XNS Mail. So it was a painful couple of years. Um, and I was like one of the new kids who helped get everybody converted to um, to Star. Okay. But mostly that happened because um, I had a project that was being done in, in XDE. Mm -hmm. And so we started turning the secretaries in, onto Tahoe instead of Star. Right, right. And so they started I have one Tahoe machine, which doesn't boot at the moment. Hmm, I'm surprised. Yeah, it's some, it stops at a certain number. And oh. You're welcome to come back. <laughs> it's uh, from Bob Garner, uh -huh. uh, if you know him. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
Alan Fryer? Fryer? Yeah, Alan Fryer's the guy to round up to get. Yeah, he gave me both of his machines. Yeah. The machine, including it, was running on the net mm -hmm. until about three, four years ago. It was running its own web server and it served to pay uh -huh. about the star. <laughs> right. Called the Wildflower site. Yeah. So it's interesting because Hal Murray ran the research internet for mm -hmm. Xerox and, um, and the XNS-based corporate internet was coming along and Alan was responsible for the XNS um, software um, in STAR and so Alan and Hal sort of kept the whole internet, or the Xerox internet together and it was slowly trying to transition from, from Hal keeping together his set of gateways which were just pieced together to um, Alan's product hardware gateways. Alan Fryer? Fryer, yeah. Fryer, yeah. Okay. And so I, I ended up in this funny situation where Alan was down in the Hillview building and, and Hal was at Park and I developed, uh, I, I had some work responsibilities that caused me to become an XDE expert. Um, but also, you know, I was a kid and all the people my age were down the, home, down the street at Hillview. So yeah. I, socialized with those guys and so I had a foot in both worlds and uh, well, we, Dave Kerbo gave us this 685 it was an XDE machine uh -huh. and I got it working with Don Woodward who's another and he looked into this machine and says oh my god this is a machine that belonged to so and so and I can't remember the name <laughs> it has like all the source code for uh -huh. everything for all of the applications uh -huh. and, and it has six years of email too oh, wow. <laughs> and so he actually dumped that off to CD he's uh -huh. he's, he's got a network of 685s wirelessly they're all wireless can you believe it uh -huh. and they're on the, on the That's amazing. in his own house uh -huh. network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the other ways I fit into park history are sort of interesting so um, one was that I was interested in virtual machines and Smalltalk before I came to Park, mm -hmm. and so uh, I would hack overnight on my own. And so I renovated an effort to do a Cedar okay. um, uh, virtual machine on the on the Dandelion, and mm -hmm. it needed the the extra con size control store, the Dandy Tiger CPU board. Oh boy! And so uh, and so we we ended up. Uh, doing this effort that um, forked in two ways. One is it became a, the home commuting uh, or telecommuting project where we bought 9,600 baud modems and we had Cedar and we had something a little bit like a virtual terminal system. Hmm. Um, and Cedar come from the Alto, right? Uh, or no, Cedar, Cedar was, Cedar was a Dorado store. thing. It was a Dorado thing. Yeah. But it, not, it wasn't Mesa. It, well, it's Mesa, but with a garbage collector and uh, I have type a, six. I have a dolphin, mm -hmm. uh, Alan Freyer's dolphin, right. which was uh, John Wick's dolphin. Yes. Yeah, so Cedar was widely believed that it, it just needed too much horsepower to run on a small box. And until we did this effort and put it on a Dandelion, a Dandy Tiger, right. um, people just didn't think it was acceptable. And in fact, it wasn't really fast enough. And it was. It was everything. It had its own email and system. Yeah. Yeah. Its its own tools. Yeah. And 
But people thought it ran fast enough so that if Xerox bought a machine for them to have at home and paid for the telephone they line, could they could read their email and do other little this small was projects. This a revolutionary idea. <laughs> right. No one had ever had a, well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but no one had ever had a workstation with a mouse and Windows and icons that also did email from home, right? This was just not... Did anyone yeah, think, that's probably true. Some, I, I would have never thought of it. That yeah, way. Some, somebody somebody told me that one of the researchers in like '79 or whatever took an Alto home yeah, to run it at home, and people thought, "What a strange idea, running this in your house." Yeah. Well, it was it was sort of interesting from the corporate side because the guy I worked with, Ed Fiala, um, uh, came up with a the complete argument on why Xerox should just buy the hardware and spend the money because all you had to do is have your guys spend three or four hours reading mail at home instead of in the office and it would have all paid for itself. Right. <laughs> they didn't need the office. And so they went, no, no, it wasn't office space. It was getting extra hours out of your worker. Okay. It was a simple argument. Okay. Right? Was, which, of course, now everybody you, says email. You make them more productive at work and... Um, and let them do the less productive stuff at home. And home on their own time. You'll, you'll, you, you either get more work or you'll hire less people. Which is the first happened by de facto now for everybody. They do email right. from 8 o'clock at night till right. midnight. And the, the other funny thing that happened was that, of course, the, the demo land came with other kinds of peripherals. So I got a system running that had a, a Trident disk drive. A 300 megabytes. Yeah, yeah, I've got two of those. And so we had. I call it dishwasher. Yeah, so we put a little database system on it, and that that really didn't turn out. But the other thing is it could interface to printers, and so that started the the DocuPrint research effort. Oh, is that where it came from? Is that was that called Trinity? Early on, no, no. Because there was various projects that collapsed into DocuPrint. Yeah, no, this was or DocuTech. It's oh, DocuPrint. Well, DocuTech is the, the high-end yeah. Doc, DocuPrint was an effort to just take the research um, interpress and PostScript decomposing system, the Cedar imaging subsystem, mm-hmm. um, which could do colors and outline fonts and all of uh, this other stuff, um, and print at high speed. Um, because up to that point, there were all sorts of engineering trade-offs of quality versus performance. Well, our, my entire world at Elixir was that we didn't do interpress. We did Metacode out to the 9700s, which was the engineering mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. Right. and all the customers used that. Right. And so we built basically a star-like environment that would run on a right. standard PC compatible uh-huh. that gave them a Xerox look and feel that that spoke no interpress because they didn't want it. Right. They wanted right. FRMs. Well, we were going the other way. <laughs> we wanted to prove that you could just do everything at a high level and not have to worry about performance. Um, and so we did a project called Bits by October, and this culminated in October of '88 when there was you may uh, know, there was a um, you know my did you ever know Mark Chang at El Segundo who was an engineer who who sat there writing Interpress trying to get it optimized in 1988. He may have been working on this. He was, he was it a sure. few days ago. I'm not sure. But he was but, an Interpress coder. Um, basically, Michael Plass and Tim Diebert were, were the key players in this. And Doug Wyatt and Rick Beach were 
Richard for, Beach, I remember. Yeah. He was a very smart guy. He he was lab manager for the imaging lab at the time. And Doug was the senior uh, PDL person. Um, and what happened was Fuji Xerox, I think it was, I forget, yeah, I think it was Fuji Xerox had a color print engine um, right around the time when the Canon CLC-1 was about mm -hmm. to come out. And there's, there's some industry imaging trade show that happened at this time, and Xerox invited its customers who were attending this show to come to El Segundo. Seabold? It could have been something yeah. like Seabold. To, they they were going to invite customers by to see what well, you know what was happening in development. And so we did this crash project to uh, decompose PostScript and print on a color printer at 40 pages per minute. Okay. Uh, yes. Which was just stunning in 1980. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Um, and so we were kind of successful. Um, well, it was really. Interesting. So we we had a Spark coprocessor board that we stuck in the dental line. Oh, weird. Right. <laughs> All these weird merges. Yeah. <laughs> and so we and I've got bounty boards, of course, which are Mesa boards you stick in. Oh, it's two machines. Right. <laughs> All these bizarre attempts. Yeah. And so uh, and so this thing was called the soft card, and it emerged out of just there was a hardware designer that just thought it was an interesting thing to do, and it just was perfect that we, he could get uh, funds to do his little toy project, and we would get a, a card that could and do imaging. Yeah, and we ported a piece of the Cedar imaging subsystem to it, um, and it ran as a coprocessor with a version of Cedar that was running on the star virtual machine hardware. What an incredible contraption. And we decomposed at speed, and then we did a little sleight of hand to ship the actual decomposed bits over to another machine that interfaced to this prototype hardware thing. And it was really entertaining because the customers would come in and we'd show them uh, decomposing to the screen. Mm -hmm. And we would say, okay, what document do you want us to print? Decompose. And we'd say, okay, it's ready to print. And right. Then they'd walk around. And while they were walking around at the printer, we would somebody would be sending an FTP job across. <laughs> and then the guy at the printer would press the magical manual print button. Right. And then the paper would start shitting, spitting out at 40 pages per minute. So it, it was where did, fairly And where did it end up? Did it end up becoming a helping Xerox or... Um, well, you know, it, to me it was a disappointment that, that, you know, Xerox never had a high-speed color printer right. out of that. And they're only uh, now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what one thing it did do is it allowed the uh, this project, Bits by October, to turn into this Xerox-funded activity, which got the name DocuPrint. Hmm. And DocuPrint was the name for the Cedar production printing system, which is really the research subsystem hardened to be offered as a product. And DocuPrint was first offered as a way to do postscript printing okay, right. on, on small the, engines. No, on the on the 165 per page per minute um, on the on the uh, DocuTech. Which is where <laughs> I ended up at a secret lab in New York. Mm -hmm. Where they were finalizing that, and I think right. were you there? Was what was it called? Wood no, or 
anyway, we I wrote interfaces, visual interface on PCs to drive jobs out mm -hmm. to document check for the launch in 1990. Uh -huh. And before that, in 1989, in order to get this is weird, but in order to get documents from the high-speed data uh, mainframe world of people who were driving them out to Xerox high-speed printers at rated speed, mm -hmm. they wanted to go to PostScript machines, but they wanted it fast. So I wrote a whole convolver that actually took all those streams and, and substituted the right fonts, because these were oddball uh -huh. sure. fonts. And I wrote something called PostScript Simple, which was a very, very simple orthogonal, like no really simple but incredibly optimized PostScript uh -huh. It would go out on a Veritiper at more speed than they'd ever seen because I didn't load all the fonts and reload them and reload them. I optimized because I knew what the cache was doing and the RIP was doing. Right. And started going to meetings at Adobe promoting this idea of a very simplified PostScript and they were working on a portable document format. Mm -hmm. And in the very, in 1991, I, I was at a lot of meetings about the definition of, of PDF. PDF, right. And I kept telling them, you need to have fillable forms. <laughs> you know, because this isn't going to be just for delivering quark files. Right. This is going to be something that goes on the screen and it's an interface. And they, they said I was crazy. Why would anybody? Anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's another yeah. little. <laughs> so yeah. I was sort of on the other side of how do you speed? How do you how do you get into the postscript world and print as fast as possible? Right. How do you you know use that as a mac? Of course, Adobe did it with PDF, but, mm -hmm. but PDF wasn't interpress. I mean, it wasn't. No. It yeah. still isn't. So, uh, yeah, it's amazing how many different things were going on there. And, you know, my involvement, I was the system guy. And um, I, I was proud that somebody wanted to do something with my homebrew virtual machine effort. Right, right? sure. Yeah. And so they kind of sucked me into this printing effort, and I learned all about printing. Um, but when they started going whole hog about printing issues, I said, oh, why don't you go do that? And it's kind of funny because that's when I wandered off to work on Dragon. I don't know if you know about Dragon. Oh, no. Okay. Tell me about... Hold on. Let, let me... Uh, let's go on. Tell me about Dragon because I have... I have a board that was given to me by Ed Satterthwaite. Ed Satterthwaite? Yeah. From that, Dragon? Well, no. It, oh. He says this board, which was done at Deck or something? When he oh, was, yeah, right. Uh -huh. He said this board is derivative of the design for Dragon. Dragon. Yes. So I I didn't know much more about Dragon. It was the last oh. game machine. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, Dragon was the last game machine, but it was made by Sun, not by... Well, well there was the, the Firefly Dragon that was made by Deck, and there was the That's Sun the, Dragon so made I, by Sun. I put these board, this board on top of the, the D0 because I wanted to show, this is the D0, and here's the D whatever uh -huh. Dragon, last one. Yeah. At least a derivative. So... So that was going to be another game machine that never got out? Um, yeah, so the, the heritage of Dragon is really kind of entertaining because somewhere around 77 or 780, 78, the guys were sitting around and they were looking at these kinds of boards and they were going like, how can we keep designing this kind of complexity? And they said, you know, we can't just keep doing scalar. We can't make scalar processors go faster. We're going to have to go multiprocessor. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they started talking. What would it, what would it take to build a multiprocessor that would like sit under your desk and have this kind of performance that that's ten years in advance of what's on the street that the researchers could use? And one key piece of that was the 
uh, Snoopy bus protocol technology that uh, Ed McWright um, pioneered. Um, that was co-invented independently by Jim Goodman at the mm -hmm. University of Wisconsin. And there's actually a, um, uh, I forget, there's um, a, a European paper mm -hmm. that was published that, that is the first the seminal paper on Snoopy bus protocols. Um, and what's really entertaining is when I interviewed at Park, I interviewed with some people that were in the hardware group, and they were saying, oh, well, we're designing this dragon thing. And I said, oh, well, this sounds interesting. And they said, well, we've been working on this for many years, and this is our like our third generation, and we're, we're currently targeting NMOS technology, and we mm -hmm. have a RISC processor, and all this other stuff. And I said, oh, that'd be really interesting. <laughs> and uh, so I came on board, although I had no affiliation with Dragon, and I just kept my ear to the ground. And very quickly, they decided they had to retarget the project for a fourth generation to be CMOS-based. Mm -hmm. And they kept going on, and I was sort of learning about what, what was going on and learning about Snoopy bus protocols and how the system would work. And the group started to have attrition, and it was going to go out of out of existence, and they decided to have a fifth generation. And part of the fifth generation, they ended up hiring what was, in essence, a, an entire research group from France that had lost their funding. That was led by uh, Jean Gastineau, and included Jean-Marc Freilong. And, uh, and added to the mix was an existing researcher by the name of Pradeep Sindhu, who's one of the Juniper founders. Mm -hmm. um, and they started to, to redefine the project, and Xerox was on financially hard times, and the question is how to do this, and, and that led to uh, signing a deal with Sun. And the deal with Sun was uh, sort of a, a little arm twisting to get the business division out of designing hardware for Star. So it was part of the global view on right. SunOS Sun, on SparkStation. Yeah. yeah, and so they came over and they they heard that we were shopping around for a partner who would pick up the hardware costs um, to build the system, and they came over and they gave us a, uh, a, a disclosure on Spark, which they hadn't revealed to anybody yet. Right. Yeah. And we talked to Motorola and we talked to Intel and. And it was like, oh, what we could, what could we do here? And Park's perspective was, well, we need a partner. What can we, you know, could we live with Spark? And we said, yeah, Spark would probably work. And then Sun did offer this, this multi-part deal, which was design the IP, IPC mm -hmm. for use by Star, because mm -hmm. the Xerox guys wanted something that was really small, and give Xerox this sweetheart you know, class A discount for all of the internal purchases and uh, and form the Dragon project that would take 10 people as architects from Park and add 50 engine design engineers from Sun um, using the um, the Dynabus intellectual property rights from from Park mm -hmm. and designing a chip site a chipset that the intellectual properties for that would be Sun, but free royalty-free use for for Xerox, and Xerox was interested in it to build a machine that would replace DocuTech. 
or other high-end imaging subsystems. And so in 89, well, it, the contract was actually signed in 80, September of 87. So I guess in 88, I went over, mm -hmm. I joined the team. So originally it was 10 hardware guys and one of the hardware guys left and I'd been poking around. So I said, well, we do need some software represented representation. So I went over as the Xerox software rep. Mm -hmm. And I spent four years at Sun building what is now their enterprise server group. Okay. And so we built their first enterprise server, which is uh, which is codenamed SunDragon, which is the, okay, that's the Spark Center 2000 processor. So that's basically how the whole Mesa thing ended up. The knowledge went into Sun, actually, in a sense. The last of the the last kind of the D of. machine. Yeah. It, the end of the road of the D, D machine was when. Xerox signed an agreement that said we're not going to build any hardware anymore. And there's a letter that was um, one of the fellows at the Alpha reunion held this letter up and he said, this is the letter that I sent in 1979 that said we need to build an Al Alto 3. Uh -huh. An Alto 3 would be a one board machine. Uh -huh. we, will, we, we should open standard it to the industry so everyone can build a bit slice, bitmap graphic, interrupt driven machine. And he was turned down. Yeah. And he yeah. said, you know, the alternate history, <laughs> the Alto was so good, you know, and, and it was, and, and yet we built this enormous architecture, the slow machine. Right. Well, the thing that was interesting is that the Dragon kind of met the description of the idea in, in the late 70s of having this multiprocessor, but it was a huge rack-based system. Yeah. And once we kind of had the system together for some purposes, our project team said, well, now how about if we consider building the machine we've always envisioned? Mm -hmm. And so we built a machine called Scorpion, which is the Spark Server 1000, which was about this big, about the size of a PC mm -hmm. tower. Uh, and it was eight processors. Um, and it costs about $30,000 to build, 20 or $30,000 mm -hmm. to build. Mm -hmm. um, and it fit the profile of what what Park guys originally had envisioned. So, it, except for the fact that it consumed a lot of power and generated a lot, a lot of heat, it's a system you could imagine doing uh, yeah. one system per researcher the way the Dorado was. Yeah, it wouldn't really sit in your it's office. Still. And after Dragon wrapped up, we started we. We approached Xerox management and he said, well, we could build an engine for printing that's a clone of the Scorpion. And we had this idea for doing a, a, a generation of chipset that we could do a thing called a copier on a chip. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they uh, allowed us to come back and, and form the division called Impact. And we built a machine called Topaz, which mm -hmm. cost us $2,000 to build. And it was a multiprocessor, which also had a TI DSP in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a perfect kind of machine to use, either at Park for, for a multiprocessor workstation okay. Okay. or to, of to build inside of a DocuTech. And we had right. these political battles, and we could never the get the DocuTech guys. And and, yeah. <laughs> and we they, were using eight, they were using 885s. Right. And... The funny thing was that they were having a hard time getting uh, components for their SCSI system. And we pointed out that we, we 
for the, what they were paying for their SCSI disks and uh, their miscellaneous hardware. They could buy a whole embedded ESS in the form of a Topaz right. and drive DocuTech. Um, and we ended up losing that argument, which was the death blow to our whole effort, because Sun pitched the, the uh, Spark Station 10. That's, that's what ended up being in there? Or? Um, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I, for a few years afterward, they had no solution. Um, so, and, and well, I had a dinner with Chip Holt one night before Docutech launched, and I said, you're using like a dozen 8085 processors which mm -hmm. Intel doesn't even make anymore, and they're, they cost. Well, actually, Docutech had these Mesa processors and an MBUS. But it also had 885s. Uh, on the controlling things. Yeah, on the, on and, the, and Intel had begged yeah. Xerox not to use them. And then I said, why does the machine stop and do nothing for 25 minutes? And Chip said, well, that's garbage collecting. And I said, right. you don't have a real operating system in there, do you? And he said, no, we do not have a real operating system in there. So that well, was, it was a multi-MESA <laughs> solution. So it was, so well, it, it was the last MESA. Multi it yeah. was the last NASA machine, the yeah, Docutech, it was, it was actually. Mm -hmm. The last D machine, which was in, appropriate. In a sense, yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Wow. Uh, is a more modern memory controller board, which I think is 4K of memory. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the I, does that mean Intel on there? I, 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 I always see that. I could only I guess. Can. That they're Intel chips. But this machine, I know this machine was running by about 72, 73, or even earlier, because it was running yeah. before Alpha was even. So these are probably pretty old. Um, well, this was a more modern board. So, so this is an addition. It was an upgrade. Yeah, this was an, uh, this was the the highest state of the art of any component boards that went in Max. How how was there um, only one Max, one machine? I think, I think they made there one. were two. There were two. But I think okay. that only one was in production at a time. Okay, so one was a bit a spare. Yeah. And these these boards actually came out of the system the day we powered it off. Wow. So what right. for, what position? Which was in which was in eighty four. Eighty four. So you pulled them out just for keepsakes? No, we, uh, the day of the decommissioning, everybody gathered around and we and just started. You just Started. says, hey, who wants a, a souvenir? And um, did, did and they said, well, Bill, you should take something because you enabled this to be unplugged. And I wow. said, well, you know, I don't know anything about this stuff. But when they're taking pieces out, I said, wow, that's wire wrapped. That's <laughs> I'll never see that again. I'll take yeah. one of those. You know, and, and I don't know why somebody had. I think I think somebody else had this board who, who left the company and, and dumped it in my office when they left. Yeah, I'm gonna be sad about this, but there was a, a D. Do you know the story about the D zero that was called such a deal? It was not a very good machine, and they actually bludgeoned it in the parking lot with sledgehammers. Oh. It's called <laughs> such a deal. I, I heard stories about. Yeah, these they, people just hate, just didn't like it. Well, the D zeros were so unreliable, well, they end up getting shunted off to uh, students. Right. The. So yeah, Dolphin sort of never made it. Yeah, Dolphin. Well, the, the one that I have, John Wicks, um, Alan tells me it was the first machine to run a Mesa instruction. Uh -huh. So it's kind of a cool, you know, it's, it, it's the first where Mesa actually right. ran. Uh -huh. <coughs> and, um, 
So it's, it's a good good artifact. Well, well, thank thank you very much for these because this will this will go alongside the clockboard, mm-hmm. and they, they gradually not that not that Max will ever <laughs> rise again, <laughs> but bits and pieces of her finding it's like Terminator Two. Bits and pieces are finding themselves back yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide you could part with these? Um, uh, they don't have particularly meaning to me. You know. Um, uh, to me, they represent the old school guys who were at Park before I got there, and I honor their work. But you know, it wasn't anything I really contributed to. In a funny way, I, f- I always felt bad that. that I was <laughs> you were burying their you machine. Were burying their <laughs> <laughs> Outline fonts war. I spent hours connecting a bitstream outline fonts a system to generate high spot fonts for the high-speed printers and bitmap. Uh-huh. I wrote a bitmap font editor, the whole bit, just to bring outline fonts to the Xerox world, uh-huh. and then at the same time make sure the set widths were right so that the same document could go to PostScript. Yeah. And then I would promote at these conferences and say you should. And we gave away the generator for free. Mm-hmm. We said use this because it means you go to you're going to go to PostScript in the future and you're going to go onto the screen, but you have to start switching off these weird handmade fonts mm-hmm. that came from God knows where, yeah. and that that don't aren't quote unquote industry standards, whatever those were. Well, I I was always impressed that the Cedar Imager, the imaging subsystem that we used was such a well-engineered, state-of-the-art piece mm-hmm. of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really had to be, because what we're running for our Windows system, um, you know, people weren't going to tolerate either poor quality or horrible performance. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the Michael Plass and, and Doug Wyatt built, you know, a font rendering and caching system that was so that, you know, when you first booted your machine in the first five minutes, you ran slow for a little while, but then you had a high-quality outline font rendered to yeah. your screen resolution, and you never noticed after that. So this, this was actually... people would tinker with the rendering algorithms to create higher quality. And so this was the only uh, outline-to-screen font generation on the, on the Dandelion, on the star architecture? Um, it, it wasn't on Star. It was inside a Cedar that ran on Dorados. On Dorados. So, right. but it was the only Xerox yeah. screen font generation that was done live from Outline. Because I know there was dis- display so. postscript yeah. on the yeah. next. Yeah, like, dis- display postscript came out in '89. So I don't think the small talk guys or list guys did anything. In no. The, so this was the. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this was the sole. This is Xerox's last step into the world of. Mm-hmm. You know that that end up becoming true type and Adobe Type One right. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it was the end of the line. You sort of seeing all this end of the line and the beginning of the new line where people thought, oh, we're doing this for the first time. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.